um, one or two other notices. One is uh, Pete is saying if anyone would like to help with the sound, uh, he would really appreciate that. And he says full training will be given. So speak to Pete at the end. The other is if you want to come on the Christianity Explorer, the second one will be uh, a week on Wednesday, not this Wednesday, but a week on Wednesday, and that's the kind of cut off for joining it because it'll be too much to catch up on otherwise. So uh, please speak to me if you intend to come to that. Okay, uh, we are, if you've got your Bibles, we'll turn to Genesis 1, Genesis 1, 2, and 3. <coughs> and we are going to look at this whole doctrine of creation. And I, I have to say, I do this with some degree of nervousness and trepidation for two reasons. First of all, there may be some of you here who are not Christians. And uh, sometimes people who are not Christians get very upset about the Bible's teaching about creation. But that's nothing compared to what Christians get upset about. I'm actually much more nervous about the Christians. uh, Because, and I'm not really wanting to be facetious about this, but people get very, very wound up about this particular doctrine. And sometimes there's a lot of hot air and sometimes... Uh, There's a lot of harm done. I think the other thing I would say is that, uh, apart from being a subject which causes probably more controversy than any other subject, I want to say that uh, I've come across several people in the course of my ministry where they've come to university, they've been Christians, they study science, they say, okay, that's it, Bible's false, and they've given up their faith. So it's a real big issue. For a, for a lot of people. It causes a lot of doubts for some people. Now, um, let me just state what we're not going to do here. Um, we're not going to fight. Usually I'm up for a fight, but not today. Uh, I'm not going to give a science lecture. Uh, there are lots and lots and lots of books. I've got s- dozens of books on this particular subject. And I'm pretty certain that we're not going to solve all the problems that arise. But we are going to try and understand the basics of the Christian teaching on creation. So let me just pray before we start. Lord, we thank you that you are the creator. We thank you that all things come from you. We bless you that uh, we are not just random, we're not just chance or the result of some chance process, but we bless you, O God, that you created and you saw that it was good. And we ask that you would help us now as we discuss your creation to see that you are good. For we ask it in your name. Amen. Now, what we're also going to do tonight is we're not going to split into groups sometimes as we do, uh, but I'm going to give the opportunity for you to ask questions. And I realize it's a bit awkward in a group this size and in a building like this, but please don't be shy and to ask questions or to make Uh, comments and I'll I'll give you an opportunity for that at the end. On the other hand, I I may have solved every single one of your problems and that's fine. Um, You could at least say so. Okay, uh, let's go on to the first thing here. What is that? In fact, I'll I'll ask the question. You can give me the answer. What is the work of creation? The work of creation Okay, that's in a sense fairly straightforward, but we've got to unpack it because, uh, as I say, there are different understandings of that. Let's go on to the next one, please. Okay, the more basic question, when people talk about creation, they immediately start thinking about evolution. Now, let me just say this to you if you're a Christian. Wrong question. That's, if you're going to discuss these things with your non-Christian friends, you do not begin with evolution. Because you end up with this incredibly complex scientific argument. And evolution, even for a non-believer, is a secondary thing. Because in order to evolve, you've got to have something to evolve. Okay? And there are lots of things that you can see in common. There, there is a, um, we, I think virtually everyone would accept microevolution. The argument is about macroevolution. And I, and I say, we'll look at that in a moment. But 
you need to go back one step further when we're talking about creation. And there are only three possibilities. You, you exist, okay? You do. And you're sitting on a chair, that exists. You go outside, snow exists. There's, there's matter. There's all the, this huge variety of, of matter in the world that we live in. Where does it all come from? It doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be there. Why is there anything at all? That's actually by far the more basic question. And these are the three options that you can have. Number one is you can say that everything comes from nothing. That's a really, really hard one to work out. At one point, there wasn't a point. There was no time. There was no space. There was nothing. There was no matter. There was no dark matter. There was no antimatter. There was just nothing. And then out of that nothing came ultimately the Big Bang and uh, everything came you. Now, that just doesn't make sense. Something coming out of nothing without any cause just doesn't really work for most people. But that's one option. The second option is to say that everything comes from eternal matter. In other words, that matter is eternal. Now, to be fair, most non-Christian or non-theist, non-Muslim, non-Jewish scientists up until about the 1950s would have argued this. Everything comes from eternal matter. In other words, there, there is something eternal. There is something that has no beginning and has no end. And that is matter of some kind. Uh, the argument usually is that this matter was infinitely dense and, and it exploded and the universe came into being and so on. However, in the 1950s and 1960s, the vast majority of scientists came to realize that actually matter did have a beginning, that the universe had a beginning. And that created a big problem. By the way, you see when you hear the phrase the Big Bang, some Christians say, oh, I don't believe in the Big Bang. Don't be daft. Of course we believe in the Big Bang. That's the whole point. How do you think God, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth? Do you think he did it with a whimper? No, he did it with a big bang. That's the whole point. It had a beginning. And it's been one of the most important things for the the Christian gospel. It has been this recognition that the universe had a beginning. So that third option for us is that everything comes from a creator. That uh, we, of course, would argue God. This, by the way, does not prove the Christian God. The creation can only teach you so much. But these are... The only options. Now last Sunday evening, I don't know, did anyone see David Attenborough last Sunday evening or watch it on the iPlayer later? Only me. How sad. That was, I watched on the iPlayer the following day and astonishingly great program in one sense. David Attenborough does this wonderful explanation of evolution. But the first five minutes of the program are awful because he gives this caricature of what the Bible teaches. And then says, in effect, he's saying, when people were ignorant, they believed this, but now we know this. And there are lots and lots of people who will say, well, um, I believe in evolution, so there isn't a God. But you've got to take them back. And if you're in that position, you've got to think, okay, even if evolution is true, and with most of my non-Christian friends, I just say, sure, okay, let's accept evolution. But how did it evolve? Where did it come from? And there are actually lots and lots of problems with the atheistic, materialistic view of evolution and of the universe. For example, um, this is a very simple one. Uh, Fiona, what are you sitting on? A chair, okay. Can that chair talk? No? Can it think? No. It can't think, it doesn't have a brain. And supposing you looked at that chair for a million years, it won't talk and it won't think. It's just, it's, it's, I mean, the stone, it's not going to be conscious. And that's actually a big, big problem in, in science. Where does consciousness come from? Where does life come from? How, how, do, how are we conscious in a way that a, a blade of grass isn't conscious? How are we conscious in the way that an animal is not conscious? Because there is something very distinctive about human beings. That's one problem. Another problem is how did life begin in order for it to evolve at all? You can't just say there's a big bang, there's a big chemical mix, then there's the earth, then there's gas, then there's water, then there's, you know, organisms getting together and then 
somehow out of that comes life and out of that comes consciousness. Evolution in and of itself does not answer these questions. So you, we're going back and we're saying God created. In the beginning, Genesis 1.1 is just so crucial. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let's go on to the next slide. <coughs> now, this is the, the fine-tuning argument. And this is still, again, back at the beginning. And it's also about the universe. I love the stars. I love going out and um, can't do it very much. You'll be able to do it tonight, though. Go out and you go and look at the stars. And just think of some of the incredible distances that the stars are. And you think of our planet. It's a tiny, tiny blue dot in our galaxy, which is a small galaxy in a universe of 100 billion galaxies. You know, it's just absolutely incredible. And you kind of think, here we are on this planet, and why, why are we not wiped out? In fact, why is life there at all? And one of the most amazing discoveries that scientists have been making in recent years is just how finely tuned the universe is. Now, what does that mean? Well, uh, this guitar here, I have no idea how to tune it. But if it was out of tune, you'd soon be able to, to tell. Someone tunes it. Someone gets it so that the strings are all in harmony with one another. Now, in our universe, there's gravity, there's carbon, there's thermodynamics, there's all these different things, and they have to be very precise for life to exist. A man called Fred Hoyle, who was an atheist, said, uh, and more than an atheist, who's the top uh, physicist in the UK, argued that for life to exist at all on Earth... An abundant supply of carbon was needed. Carbon is formed by three helium nuclei or by combining nuclei of helium and beryllium. And for this to happen, okay, I'm not a scientist either, so I don't understand this, but some of you will be going, oh yeah, that's right. The nuclear ground state energy levels have to be finely tuned, and it's something that's called resonance. If it moved 1% either way, life on this planet could not exist. Now, Sir Fred Hoyle said this, that when he discovered this, and he got a Nobel Prize for making these kind of discoveries. That his sh it shook his atheism more than anything. You see, here's an interesting thing. You get Christians who say, or people who grew up in the church who say, well, you know, I used to be a Christian, but when I studied science, it just ruined my faith. But then you get people like Sir Fred Hoyle, who says, I'm an atheist, but as I studied science, this shook my atheism Let's go on to the, uh, this one here. It looks as if a super intellect has monkeyed with physics as well as with chemistry and biology. That's Sir Fred Hoyle. He also said this, there are no blind forces in nature worth talking about. It looks like it. It looks as though someone has done something. Someone has designed something. Now that's on earth. Go on to the next slide, please. This is the Goldilocks enigma. We all know the story of Goldilocks. She... Um, the porridge, what was it? One was too sweet. No, one was too bitter. That's right. And one was too sweet. But baby porridge was just right. Bev, sorry if I got this wrong. Hot and cold. Oh, sorry. All right. One was too hot. One was too cold. And one was just right. You've got to get these illustrations accurate because otherwise fairy tale people who get really, really upset. But it was just right. The bed was too hard, too soft, just right. And the chair was too big, too small. Or whatever. But just, you get, the, you get the, the picture. It's just right. Now, here's the amazing thing, okay? In this universe that we live in, it is just right for human life. It's just right. Stephen Hawking, who is by no means a Christian, said, it looks as though, again, you see, and all these guys are saying it looks as though this. It looks as though God created the universe or someone designed the universe in order to create beings just like us. In other words, this whole vast universe, one argument that blows my mind completely is that this whole vast universe is necessary in order for this one planet to exist and for us to exist on it. Let me, this is from Paul Davis. He's got a book called The Goldilocks and Eczema. Why is the universe just right for life? If the ratio of the nuclear strong force to the electromagnetic force 
had been different by one part in 10 to the 16, that's 10 with 16 zeros after it, no stars could have been formed. When you bring in other constants, that raises it to 1 to, or 10, uh, 1 to the 10 to the 40. And what that means is 10 to the, I, I don't think anyone can read that number. But that's actually nothing. You, you, you end up having to create a number which is so vast that the number itself is bigger than the number of atoms in the whole of the universe. In other words, it is just so, so, so unlikely. There's a great illustration from one uh, philosopher. I love this. He says, imagine this. And I, I tried to draw a picture of this and put it up here, but I couldn't. I can't draw, so I need someone who can draw. Imagine if you went to America and you covered America with coins in a column reaching to the moon. So, in, in basically, you cover the whole of America with coins, and then you just make it go all the way up to the moon, which is 236,000 miles away. And you do that, and then you do the same thing for a billion other continents of exactly the same size. So you go to America, you put all these coins along the bottom, then you go the coins, all the, I mean, you've got to have a lot of time in your hands to do this, okay? And you go all the way to the moon, and then you do it to a billion other continents. You then get one coin and you paint it red. And you put it in one of these billion continents in one of these 236,000 mile columns in one of these billion continents. You then blindfold a friend and you say, okay, find me the red coin. That is how impossible life on earth is and life in this universe is. If you're just saying it's just, we, it's, it's random, we just happen to be here. I think that uh, this, uh, this quote here from Davis, it seems as though someone has fine-tuned nature's numbers to make the universe, to make it rather, the impression of design is overwhelming. And then let's go on just one more. Callum, go to the next one. This is John Lennox, professor of maths and philosophy at the University of Oxford. He says this, far from science having buried God, not only do the results of science point towards his existence, but the scientific enterprise is validated by his existence. We have two choices. Either human intelligence ultimately owes its origin to mindless matter, or there is a creator. It is strange that some people claim it's their intelligence that leads them to prefer the first to the second. That's the two choices you have. There are no other choices. You either say that your intelligence results and your consciousness results as just a mindless matter, or there's, a, if you like, a supermind, and, and what we would call a God from the Bible who's created that for us. Now, that, what's that got to do with Genesis 1 and creation? That is Genesis 1.1. That's where you've got to begin, and that is what is so important. In other words, every single Christian is a creationist in the sense that we believe that God created. The argument that a lot of people have now is, okay, well, how did he create? So let's go on to three different Christian views. Let's look at those. Okay. Now, I'm going to state what these are as fairly as I can. Uh, you can ask me if you want what my own view is, um, if you like, but I'm not, I'm not really here to teach my own view. Let me just tell you the three. Now, there are variations of these views, and this is quite s simple, but number one is young earth creationism. God created the world in six 24-hour days about 10,000 years ago. Um, probably, I was trying to think of some well-known Christians who believe this, who I admire and respect and so on, and R.C. Sproul would be uh, one. There's another man called Doug Kelly who's written a really good book called Creation and Change, which argues for this position. Number two is old earth creationism. In other words, God created the world millions or billions of years ago, and, but there was a special creation of human beings at some point, maybe 10, 20, 30, 40,000 years ago. Now, people like Thomas Chalmers, Hugh Miller um, from the Free Church, um, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great Baptist minister, Hugh Ross, current today, a uh, good writer, uh, they all accepted and they all believed that. In fact, it's, it's quite strange. Um, this just as a historical thing, that in the Free Church, when it was formed in 1843, most people would have been quite happy just accepting that the world was billions of years old uh, and that that position was considered to be an honorable biblical one. The third position is what's called theistic evolution. God created the world millions of years ago and he used evolution 
to create humans. And at some point, there are these people who believe this believe that there, are, there were pre-Adamites, human-like creatures before Adam and Eve. And at some point, God chose either one couple, Adam and Eve, and breathed his spirit into them, and humans became spiritual beings. People like Francis Collins, the director of the Human Genome Project, John Stott, the great Anglican uh, evangelical, uh, Dennis Alexander, who's got a book, Creation or Revolution, Do We Have to Choose? And even B.B. Warfield, the great uh, reformer, reformed theologian, who once said, I'm an Arwinianist of the purest sort, believe that. And that's hard for some people uh, to accept because there's a kind of war been going on. And it's a war that's particularly been going on in America, but it's more and more coming in place here where the, the whole issue of which view of creationism you take is deemed to be central to whether you really are a Christian or not. Okay, let's go on to the next one, please. Right, there's some problems in all three of these views. I, I don't personally, uh, I wish it was as black and white as I, I'd like it to be, but uh, there are problems in all three. Let me just say what some of them are. If you're a young earth creationist, you have a problem with theology, you have a problem with science, you have a problem with scripture, and, and I think all of them do. And you, you balance it out, you think of trying to work out if, if, you're, if you're really, really concerned about this. There's no question at all that if you're a young earth creationist, you have a real problem in that the earth does appear to be a whole lot older than you think it is. And you then have a problem, if that is the case, you have, in other words, you have a problem with the scientific evidence for the age of the earth and fossils and all that kind of stuff and the apparent age of rocks. And the standard answer to that is to say, well, God created the world old. He didn't create Adam a, a, a baby, which in one sense is a good answer. But because of the, the age of the rocks and the fossils and things like that, some people go on to say, well, what that means is that human beings are just being God. It's a test to see whether we believe his word. Now, there's a theological problem there because it implies that God is trying to cheat us and, and almost making God dishonest. And I think that, that is a difficulty. What's the scriptural problem? Some people say, well, look, that's just the plainest reading of scripture. Actually, no, it's not. Not at all. You read Genesis 1 and 2, and there's no way around this. Genesis 1 and 2 give two different accounts of the creation. And if you were to take them both absolutely literally, you would find yourself having to conflict things that were very, very... Let me give you just one example. Um, if you say, for example, the word day always means 24 hours, then what happens when you get God saying to Adam, the day you eat of it, you will die? And that death... Uh, young earth creationists would say his physical death. But Adam didn't die that day. He lived for hundreds of years afterwards, according to the scriptures. So it, it, it creates a problem. And I, I think, beware please of people being very simplistic about things and just saying, the Bible says this and it's dead plain and it's dead simple and it's dead straightforward. Uh, in a lot of things, it isn't. Number two, old earth creationism. There are problems again with theology, with science, with scripture. Uh, the big theological problem is, if you believe in an old earth, you have to believe that there was some kind of death before the fall. You don't believe that elephants and animals and human beings um, lived for millions of years, for example. So you have to believe there's some kind of death before the fall. And that does create a real problem. And you have to think through the implications of that. And I think, again, there are problems in the science, and there are problems... Um, scripturally when you, you want to look at it and you want to say how does this fit in with what the Bible says theistic evolution there are various forms of that but again there are problems there are problems theologically for example some theistic evolutionists would imply that there was no fall at all that there was death and that there was destruction and that there was evil in the world before the fall now that's clearly unbiblical and creates enormous problems theistic evolution at times does appear to be contrary to scripture, especially the first three chapters of Genesis. And with evolution itself, it, it's not quite the fact that gravity is. There are lots of question marks about the science as well. Now, I don't know enough about that, but I, I do know um, Christians or non-Christians who've got PhDs in science and, and who say, no, no, it's not just quite as clear-cut, the whole evolution thing. 
So when someone comes on and says you're an idiot if you don't believe in evolution, that's not exactly fair. There's, there's, there's questions and, and so on involved in that too. Let's go on to the next one, please. <clears throat> okay. Um, let me... Come back to this. Let me just give you some quotes as regards um, the theistic evolution. Because I basically want to argue for some position of tolerance on this, where I want to say that if you're a Christian, you can be a Christian and you could hold to some variation of any one of these, providing you hold to the core doctrines, uh, as we'll see what they, they are in a minute. And I know that there are people who say, well, no, we can't have a theistic evolutionist. Well, there's a man called G.F. Wright, and you may not have heard of him, but he was one of the men who was one of the initial fundamentalists. This is what he said. If only the evolutionists would incorporate into their system the sweetness of the Calvinistic doctrine of divine sovereignty, the church would make no objection to their speculations. In other words, what he was saying was, if you accept that God is sovereign, then God could sovereignly work through evolution to create this wonderful world in which we exist with all its variety and with all its ability to adapt. And the classic argument there would be, for example, we've just sang, God makes the bread, God makes the wine. Well, does he? Literally. Does God bake you a loaf of bread, or do you buy it from Tesco's? You buy it from Tesco's. Does God give it to Tesco's? No, you get it from the baker's. Does the baker? No, he gets it from the... How does it... We know the whole process by which bread comes. Does that mean that God doesn't give the bread? No, he does give the bread, but it's through a process. So the argument is that, that, that God could have worked through this process to create this wonderful world in which we live. R.A. Torrey, another very strong evangelical, said this, It is possible to believe thoroughly in the infallibility of the Bible and still be an evolutionist of a certain type. And Tim Keller says, For the record, I think God guided some kind of process of natural, natural, selection, natural selection, and yet I reject the concept of evolution as an all-encompassing theory. In other words, he's saying God biologically could have worked that way, but evolution doesn't explain everything. Okay, I, I gave you those three quotes because I think that most Christians would say, well, the young earth creationism or the old earth creationism, we can see that, but theistic evolution, maybe not. And I, I'm just saying it's not quite as black and white as we might think. One of the key doctrines that are taught in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, I, I think that these are fundamental in the Bible, they are fundamental in theology, they are, uh, you, if you, whichever position you take on evolution and the young earth creationism, old earth creationism, theistic evolutionary creationism, uh, you've, got to have, you've got to incorporate these things. Number one, Genesis 1, 2, and 3 just simply teaches there is one God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Monotheism, there weren't many gods. Now, we've done this already in a previous session when we looked at the, the whole idea of one God. And again, I repeat what I've said then and what, I, what is so important. The Genesis was written in the context where the vast majority of people in the world believed that there were many gods. And this was a revolutionary teaching saying there is only one God. Number two is that God created ex nihilo. All that that means is simply this. Something was created out of nothing... And it was created by God. Matter is not eternal. At one point, all that existed in the universe, except the universe wasn't there, was God. At one point, there was only God. And then God created. And he created this whole vast universe from nothing. Number three, the uniqueness of human beings that are made in God's image. Uh, Amy read that in Genesis 1, 27. Let us make man in our image, male and female. He made them in his image. Now, whether you believe of, of, of how the human body came around biologically, that's one issue. But you could not be a Christian. I don't think you could be a Christian and believe that the human soul evolved. How does a soul evolve? At some point, <coughs> we find that... Uh, mankind changed. There was something just different. He created male and female. I think... Uh, look at Genesis 2, verse 7. 
The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now, I think that, that it is correct to understand it as uh, a spiritual being, that we are made in the image of God. And again, when we look at the Catechism, later on we're going to look, and it says, made in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Made in the image of God does not mean, and we'll keep saying this, and not just for the children, but for the adults as well. When you say you're made in God's image, it doesn't mean that you look like God because God doesn't have a body. What it means is that you are a spiritual being. It means that you are a rational being, that you can think. It means that you can worship. It means that you can love. It means that you can discern between right and wrong. Human beings are made in the image of God. Number four is the fall. That again is very, if you are a theistic evolutionist, you still have got to find some way to take the fall. In other words, human beings rebelled against God and as a result of that rebellion against God, sin came into the world and as a result of that sin coming into the world, the whole world has become polluted and it's changed everything. And again, the gospel, Christ dying on the cross does not make sense without the fall. So uh, whatever position you take on on creationism the fall has to be part of it and then the last thing is just the promise of a savior that's in genesis 3:15, where the serpent is told that there'll be enmity between you and the woman and between your your offspring and hers he will crush your head and you will strike his heel there's this conflict between the forces of good and the forces of evil and there's the promise of a savior coming now those are the key core things i think that are taught in genesis 1 two and three Uh, as I said um, I don't think that it is right for people to de-christianize people over their different views on the earth I think it's it's good to discuss them and to discuss them sensibly Uh, the center of the gospel is the cross of Jesus Christ the center of the gospel is not what view you have on evolution or creation and uh, I, just, I, I would just urge people to be careful that you don't put stumbling blocks in people's ways. If I'm given a choice between what a scientist tells me and what the Bible tells me, I'll take what the Bible tells me any day. Of course. But I need to be very, very sure that what I'm actually saying is actually what the Bible says. That's um, the, the issue for me. And... Uh, I personally think there's been just a whole lot of harm done by, on, this, on this whole issue. God created the world. That's almost enough for me. God is responsible for my creation. There isn't anything in this whole universe that God did not create. And I, I think that is wonderful. Sin pollutes the world. I know that also. And Christ comes to save the world. And that, incidentally, according to Romans 8, includes the renewal of uh, creation as well. Okay, Uh, I'm going to stop there. And we're going to give an opportunity for uh, anyone to to ask a question or to make a comment. The easiest way to do it is if you could just kind of raise your hand and uh, tell me what you want to ask or what you think. Or be completely silent. But now is your opportunity, and it makes it much more interesting if you do want to say anything. So please feel free to do so. Anyone want to ask anything or say anything? Yes, Dan. That if, if, if you were a young earth creationist, what Dan is saying is correct. I'll just repeat it so that people... That, um, the, the key for young earth creationists in Genesis 1 is to say there was evening, there was morning. So these are specific periods of time. Um, obviously, they can't be 24-hour days because a 24-hour day is a solar day. And the sun wasn't created until the fourth day. In that sense, if you, if you, if you think of it that way. Now, there are lots and lots of Christians who um, regard Genesis 1 as a, and this is, this is where you get in trouble, but as a, as a poetic account, not 
as a scientific textbook. Um, does that mean to say that they're saying it's not true? No, I don't think so. But um, people struggle with the notion of the sun being created after the earth, for example. And so what they're saying is that these are days of revelation. That the day, these were Moses. This was all revealed to Moses uh, in that sense. Sorry, I mean, that's a, that is a very good point. The other thing I should have put in that list of key doctrines is that God created by his word, which is hugely important. He spoke and it came into being, which is hugely important. Um, which incidentally also means uh, St. Augustine um, didn't regard the, the days of the earth as literal days, but he was actually going the opposite way. He was saying God could create in six seconds. It doesn't matter. He's God. He could have created in any way he wanted. But what is Genesis actually saying? So... But thank you for pointing that out. Anyone else want to? Okay, Angela. Yeah. Uh, God said, let the light, and there was light. God saw the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. See, the interesting thing, if you go back to verse 2, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. That, people believe, some people believe that between Genesis 1-2 and Genesis 1-3, there's huge, there's billions of years. Because that's not actually the first day. Um, and when you get to verse 3, let there be light. Some people just say, well, it was just a supernatural light that God provided. But others think, well, look, this was actually really just this, the sun and the stars and so on. But, it's, I mean, other people think this is a poetic account and it's the light that comes first in the darkness. You know, so. Gareth. Yeah. 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 It could be. There's no need for the sun in heaven. So, uh, I mean, it could be that. There's no need for the sun at all. And it's interesting because you're right there because if you take Genesis 1 and 2 and then go to the end of Revelation, there is an incredible number of similarities. The trees, the tree of life and all that kind of stuff. The leaves being for the, the healing and things like that. So, yes, that could be. It could be. And the other answer to your question, Angela, is I don't know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway, oh, yeah, go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, okay, well, we won't go into all this whole theory, but can I just say something about scientific theories and Christians? Yeah. Well, I think there are a lot of considerations, but here's what happens. I mean, I'll, I'll not go Humphreys, but let's just go, uh, there's a book called Morrison Whitcomb called The Genesis Flood. And lots and lots of Christians jumped on this. Oh, this is wonderful. Because this is how you explain the fossils. There was this universal flood. It squashed all the animals. The fossils were created, etc., etc. And it was huge. All this science stuff and, you know, dust on the moon and a whole bunch. Of, and lots and lots of Christians bought into the science. But here's the problem. What Morris and Whitcomb did to me was wrong because they made the Bible hostage to science. In other words, they said, this is the science that proves the Bible. You prove this science wrong and it means the Bible is wrong. And for me, that's an enormous danger because what you do is you get someone coming along. And I mean, I was in this building where a man came and he was speaking about evolution and he, and he didn't agree with it. And he's, a, he's actually a geologist from Sterling. He's a Christian. But I tell you this, he was great. He was so humble. And he said, this is what I think happened. This fits for me scientifically. But he says, I'm not saying this proves or disproves the Bible or it's up for. And that's where I would urge people to be very, very cautious because a lot of Christians go and read a book by a scientist who is a Christian, or a Christian who is a scientist, and say, that's it, that didn't, and then they go and, you know, espouse these theories, and other people look and say, wait a minute, that's rubbish. Scientifically, that's false. Scientifically, that's, you know, so for example, a classic argument we would use is, um, or I would use against evolution, I would have used was, the, there's gaps in the fossils, and they can't, actually, the, those gaps are being, less and less found so I can't really use that argument not to a scientist much more anyway so I've just had to say look what do I know I'm not a scientist 
So I would be very, very careful overall about trying to prove the Bible from science. Because one thing is clear, Genesis is not a scientific textbook. Now, I don't think Genesis is fable, but it's not a scientific textbook. Do you know that there were Christians who believed that it was wrong, sinful, to say that um, the, the earth went round the sun? Because the Bible speaks of the sun rising and the sun going down and the sun stopping and Joshua, the, the day the sun stood still. And there was a time when, now, that would be absolutely ludicrous now. I, I do know one person, because <laughs> he sent me his website, saying he could prove that the sun still went around the earth, but he was nuts. But, <laughs> I mean, just genuinely off the wall. But there were people who said, the Bible says this. Well, the Bible did say that the sun goes up, the sun comes down. The Bible did say that the sun stood still. But we say that too. I mean, I say the sun goes up in the morning, the sun goes up, but the sun doesn't go up. It's the earth that's moving, not the sun. But you're not expressing it scientifically. So for me, I can't, I've never read Genesis 1 and 2 as, this is a scientific textbook. What is amazing to me actually about Genesis 1 and 2 is a professor of physics in Glasgow University who's not a Christian wrote a letter in which he said, it's astonishing that the Bible actually got it right in terms of the sequence of events of creation. Because how could they know? They didn't have the scientific knowledge. But it's there. So, you know, things like that I'm quite happy with, but not the idea of, well, I've got this scientific theory, so this proves the Bible is right. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and there are quite a lot of theories. But, I mean, I'm ignorant about science. So, (laughs) forgive me in that sense. Nigel. Because that's an argument not from, in so much from science, that's an argument in a sense from design and saying, and I think that there are things that you can look at and you can say, okay, we see this. Science can teach us things. You know, don't, Christians are not anti-science. In fact, this is a very important thing. You can make a serious case for saying no modern science could exist if it wasn't for Christianity. Because the ancient world, people believed that the universe was disorder and chaos. Christianity said, no, it's not. The universe is order. And because you believe it's order, you then can study it. And that's what people did. And that's why, for example, the Royal Society, virtually all of them were Christians. So I think that what you can do is you can take arguments from science and you can say, isn't this amazing? And, you can, and I, I would use the argument from science from the fine-tuning of the universe, not to prove the Bible, but I would use the argument from the fine-tuning of the, of the universe to, um, to ask a non-Christian, how do you explain this? It's not, it's not God of the gaps, but to say, you know, and, and the, the interesting thing is, do you know how most non-Christian scientists would explain the fine-tuning of the universe? Because they, they, can't, they can't deny it, so they've invented something called the multiverse, which I think is hilarious. Now, I'm not a scientist, so I, uh, but the whole idea that there are actually billions of universes, and this is the one that really gets me. Pure multiverse theory says that there are as many universes as there are possibilities, so, for example, there's a universe right now where Fiona Ellis is up here preaching. That's what's happening. <laughs> there's, there's a universe where you are already dead. Or as Richard Dawkins puts it, there's a universe where you have a green mustache. I mean, it's, when, when you say it like that, it's so hard not to mock. Because it's just, but that's, and there is no evidence, there's no scientific evidence for the multiverse theory, but... Basically, people realize that for the, the reason I would use that argument is not to prove the Bible, but it's to challenge non-Christians to come up with a decent alternative. And um, I don't think the Bible needs proved in that way. I mean, I, I just, you know, I, this is maybe such a cliche, but I, I don't even think I need to defend the Bible. Spurgeon once said, defend the Bible, I would as soon defend a lion. No, uh, I, I just can't be bothered with all those arguments in that way. But it's a good question. Very good. Yes, sir. Sure.
Well, I, I mean, I, and I respect you for that. Um, though I would say that, for me, there are people who say Scripture says, and who believe Second Timothy three sixteen, but who are also old Earth. You know, uh, and and that would be for me. For me, would be the problem. I I, I don't. Um, Yeah, well, they would say the same, and they would, but they would look at the Hebrew word for day and say it could be a thousand years. They would ask questions like, what happened on the eighth day? Mm-hmm. Oh, I mean, you, there, there's no getting around the fact that you have to say everything was made out of nothing. No getting around that. That's, that's creation ex nihilo. That's the, what, oh, it's gone, never mind. <laughs> that's what I'd put up there. But I mean, for me, I would just say that there are Christians who disagree on it, and it's, it's, it's probably a little more complex than that. Though, I, I mean, I, I would fully accept 2 Timothy 3.16. No, no problem. Uh, I mean, obviously, the Scripture is God's Word. Um, but it's, a, it's when people have different understandings of what the Scripture means. Well, let me put it this way. I, have, I, I don't know a single Christian church where people don't have difficulties on interpretation of the Bible. People argue about baptism, speaking in tongues, or, you know, creation, all that kind of stuff. And people say, well, look, it's so plain to me in the Bible. And I think sometimes we have to, I, I look at things and I say, to me, they're so plain in the Bible, they're so obvious. But then I have to realize, wait a minute, I've been a Christian for 30 years, I've been teaching the Bible for 25 years, I'm still learning stuff all the time. So I just need a little humility myself and to say, I'm not going to turn around and say to people, nah, you're being unbiblical. I, I, need, to, I, I need to look at it and say, okay, what's going on here? Because I'm not prepared to say John Stock can't understand the Bible or Spurgeon or R.C. Sproul, all of whom have got different views. Um, you know. No. I, I, I would I actually say that old earth was around a lot longer. Uh, personally, young earth creationism. No, there were no there were there were others as well. Long before Augustine, for example, brought it out as possibilities. Others believed it. Actually, young earth creationism came from the Christian Science Movement in the United States, which I would regard not even as Christian, and it really stressed that as being the the core and most fundamental doctrine. And it's actually quite strange. It's only in the 20th century that Christians really got wound up about this and fought each other. And I'd love that to stop. You know, I think that um, I hate it when people who are young earth creationists are despised by people who are not. And I hate it when it's the other way around. There's no need. You know, there's, uh, keep the core and let people work these things through. But I've known plenty of people who have been told you have to be a young earth creationist or you're not a Christian. They've said, okay, I can't in all honesty be one, so I guess the Bible's false. And I think that's a terrible shame when that, when that actually happens. You know? but, and so that's why I wouldn't push it that way either. Alan. This is the last one, by the way. Carry on. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's yes. I think that um, the immediate death that was inflicted upon Adam and upon Eve was spiritual death. There is no question about that at all, and that's what the fall is. Um, I personally, my own personal view would be that it involves physical death as well, but that's. Um, and, and I think that the fall infects the physical and, you know, that's why it makes things very, very complicated. But there's no question at all that that was a spiritual death. That Adam walked in fellowship with God 
And the day you eat of it, you will die. That fellowship died. That's why we need to be born again. Because we are spiritually dead. And I mean, there's a great phrase that I've heard, I've heard people use, born dead. Human beings are born dead. We are not fully human. We need to be reborn. We need to have God's spirit. come in. And that's the whole recreation. You are a new creation in Christ. And that's where um, the point that was made about revelation comes in, because that's the ultimate in the new creation as well. So that, for me, is really, really, really the key issue. This, you know, how did the spiritual death come in? And that's, again, also the major distinction between human beings and animals. Because um, human beings were created to have this special relationship with God. We are meant to look after the animals. They're God's creatures as well. But we have this special relationship. And that special relationship went sour. And I do think that the, the whole aspect of creation, and with this I'll finish in terms of human beings, is so important because every single human being is made in God's image. And if you despise another human being, you're despising someone made in God's image. If you kill another human being, you're killing someone made in God's image. And, and it just, that's just such a, 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 a horrible thing. Now, I said I'd finish, but let me just finish just saying this. I do look, and I think Christians should look, at the furthest star and at the smallest thing that you can see through a, a microscope or whatever and realize just how incredibly God has created it and wound it all together. I think that um, the doctrine of God as creator is, is, is just a fundamental doctrine to the Christian uh, Psalm 139, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. The doctrine that there's something gone wrong with the creation is also hugely important. And the doctrine of redemption of the creation is part of that as well. Now, in a sense, we've only scratched the surface. There are lots and lots of different issues that people would have. But let me say this to you. If you're not a Christian, don't walk out of this with the idea of thinking, on the one hand, science tells us this, that you know, the earth is round and so on. And on the other hand, here comes the Bible and it tells us the earth is flat. And therefore, you know, I can't even be a Christian. I can't even think about it. That's not true. I would urge people to be skeptical about findings of science. And I would urge Christians to be humble about our interpretation of the Bible. And uh, just that we be, be careful in terms of who we, are, who we are going to condemn or not condemn or whatever. And above all... I think all of our understanding of creation should be focused in Christ. When we went through Colossians and we came to that second part of Colossians chapter 1, we saw how the universe was created in Christ, the universe was created for Christ, and that we are redeemed in Christ, and the creation ends up praising Christ. So I would argue for a Christ-centered understanding of creation. And um, to be honest... I'm just not all that bothered about all the scientific arguments. I mean, I read them, but uh, the more I go on, the more the wonder of Christ creating. I know that God created. I don't know how he created. If, if that, that would be my view. I know that God created. I don't know how. And I'm not too bothered. I just know that he did, and I'm delighted at that. Uh, okay, let's finish with... A